Welcome to Hard Knock Life. I'm Keith Chow. I'm Dom uh, Hello. Our universe has been rebooted, and we're here <laughs> to <Hooray>. celebrate <laughs> a brand new Earth. 2019 was erased, right? Earth 2019 was. I hope so. A, a distant memory now. It feels like it. Now we're we're in the Earth Prime of 2020. Cool. So we're going to be talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths for the majority of the podcast. Before we do, I want to put a button on Star Wars because I feel like <laughs> all we talk about is Star Wars now. But like we've become a default Star Wars podcast, and I'm tired of talking Star Wars. I said I've been saying this all for the last two months. I was trying to, you know, offer a counterpoint, but you're actually right. We've been talking mainly about Star Wars. Can't <laughs> have, have to own up to it. So I, this is the last thing I will say about Star Wars, hopefully, and then we can move on to other things in the nerd world. In between episodes of this podcast, it was revealed that the original episode nine script got out into the world and various websites from the AV club to the playlist to Esquire have been writing about it. And I don't know if you had a chance to read up on Colin Trevorrow's original episode nine script at all, have you? Just to clarify, Colin Trevorrow's episode nine script, I believe there was some inkling that there was a George Lucas original, original Outline sure. also sometimes, but that's not the one we're talking about. Not at all. That one not at came all. not at all close to being a movie. Colin Trevorrow <laughs> exactly. came close to being a movie. <laughs> yes, he was. So for those of you not in the know, Colin Trevorrow was the original director writer for episode nine. He was the one who was let go and was replaced by J.J. Abrams. That was around like 2016, 2017, when Lucasfilm was firing every, <laughs> basically firing every director that they had hired. And uh, he got... He got let go, and, and of course, J.J. came back and gave us The Rise of Skywalker, and it was always a mystery what Trevorrow's script was going to be. And if you're not familiar with his work, he's the guy who rebooted the Jurassic Park franchise with Jurassic World and then created a like a super mega flop that I've never seen, but apparently is one of the worst movies ever made called Book of Henry, and that potentially is why he was fired from Star Wars. Movies with book in the title. <laughs> Got to be wary. <laughs> did you did you read up on some of the details of uh, his episode nine? Which, first of all, has the dopest title. It was Star Wars Episode Nine: Duel of the Fates, yeah. which is a callback to that John Williams piece from Phantom Menace. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Much better than the Rise of Skywalker, which even now makes no sense. Yeah, even after the context of the movie. That's still a dumb title for for a Star Wars movie. Yeah, did she just rise? More like she's self-adopted. But that, <laughs> that wouldn't have flown, so to speak. I, I read the outline by the person on Reddit uh, who <laughs> was purporting to give the outline. And I believe that's what most people read, right? I guess there was yes. a YouTube version also where he talked about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but it has been corroborated by three or four other news outlets, so... Excellent. For the most part, this is not this is not some like bullshit fan fiction that you know went viral. This is apparently an early draft of the episode nine script before he was let go. Yeah, and also, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but when when reading it, I'm like, okay, you know, it's the internet. There are a lot of things out there. There are a million fanfic versions of what a Star Wars movie should be. Right. But you know, reading it, it had what, what what's that word? It wants to be able to pronounce verisimilitude. <laughs> it's had the appearance of being real. And what I mean is like, you know, it, it seemed, it seemed credible. It's, it had, you know, kind of like when you're watching Rachel Maddow's interview of that dude love Parnas yeah. <laughs> this week and you're trying to decide, I mean, this guy's spinning a big story. Do I actually believe this, this story? You know, it had the appearance of credibility because right. it hit certain touchstones that you know they would want to hit. 
So for me, you know, bought in on that level, it's like, okay, I believe this is a real thing. And it was a great outline. You know, I'm a screenwriter. Like I like, I like reading the, you know, bullet point outlines of how stories. Oh, yes, the treatment. I thought it was sound like pretty awesome treatment. Right. And that's the thing to remember is that all we're going on is not even a final script. It's a treatment. It's a bullet points on Reddit. It's some guy on YouTube. It's not the full manuscript of the screenplay. And furthermore, it's even if it was just a script, it would be just that a script. Who knows how Trevor would have filmed it? What, what would have changed from the script stage to the final product? You know, I'm sure there are people who read the Rise of Skywalker script and thought, oh, that's pretty good. I'd doubt it but i'm sure they i'm sure they're out there so that's the second mystery to me is how the rise of skywalker script looked on paper but i mean because like again we're just talking about on paper like the the events seemed cool like the opening of uh you know the there's there's a heist involving rose and i guess bb-8 and they grab a star destroyer spoiler for movies that doesn't exist by the way And also, I mean, I, sorry, I just, <laughs> so one general point, like, it's not like anything radically weird or new happened. It would definitely was not like a case of, oh, he went in some strong creative direction that like would be too weird for Star Wars. It's still just basically Star Wars events that just seemed a little um, plussed from the version that we uh, saw in theaters. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, and that might be some of my bias shining through, but as soon as I read those first like three bullet points where it was... Rose and BB-8 at a shipyard stealing a Star Destroyer. I was like, I'm all in. Because <laughs> that's way more than Rose got in the movie. So give me give me Rose doing a Star Destroyer heist and, and I'm, I'm happy. I also love the fact that it starts with that kind of like James Bond, you know, cold open basically of action sequence set piece that, you know, drops you in kind of in a way kind of like how... Uh, Last Jedi starts off with that bombing raid, you know, it's yeah, just sure. this action set piece at the very beginning drops you in, you know, in media res. So, yeah. And it also, you know, slightly recalls how Return of the Jedi starts with a kind of, you know, infiltration mission in a place we're not familiar with, you know, with the uh, Rose instead of uh, Leia doing something kind of unexpected. Yeah. That is part is great. And now, now I'm completely failing to even remember what the opening set piece of Rise of Skywalker was. <laughs> Except that they jumped through like six planets in like yeah. four seconds and that was supposed to be the big wow. I can't, I can't even remember what they were doing. I think the script, you know, the other thing we were saying that makes a script different from a movie is that one of your bones of contention was Skywalker is that who knows how it would have been edited <laughs> because because the first 20 minutes of Skywalker edited insanely. But I think just the idea of like starting with this set piece having Rose be center stage and then giving her more to do. And and again, I'm being biased here. My biggest beef with Rise of Skywalker is the intentional sidelining of Rose Tico. So seeing her at the center of not just the beginning opening action sequence, but having her own narrative through thread with Finn kind of picking up on whether a story in Last Jedi left off with the two of them essentially rallying the people of the galaxy behind the cause of the rebellion. Yeah. It's kind of perfect. And and also, you know, the thing that I think this reveals is that there was communication between the three films. Do you know what I mean? Like hmm. people, people kind of bitch about, oh, you know, JJ went one way, then Ryan went in a different direction. So JJ had to take it back. Like there's no coordination But if you read the details of this story, it picks up threads 
from Last Jedi. And when this script was written, Last Jedi was not made yet. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, this script yeah. Uh, was dated in 2016. It was actually written before Carrie Fisher passed away. And if there was right. one, if there's one flaw, I think, in the leaked outline is that Leia doesn't seem to have much to do even in this script when it was supposed to be her movie. You know, that could be why he was let go. Maybe, you know, if they're going with the pattern of Force Awakens being the Han Solo movie, Last Jedi being the Luke Skywalker movie, and then Leia being the main character of the third movie, not giving her anything to do was, was kind of weird. So the script was written a full year before Last Jedi came out. The fact that there are points from the story of The Last Jedi that come to fruition in this script, Rey being a nobody, Kylo being the supreme leader, Rose and Finn being the clarion call for the rebellion, you know, around the galaxy. Yeah. Are threads from The Last Jedi. So, like, there was more coordination between these three movies and people give it credit for, I think. Yeah. Or at least until J.J. Abrams course corrected when the backlash from the second movie got too out of hand, I guess. Yeah, but that's just, like, shows you what the problem is of being reactive. Because, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree completely. It was, the outline is suggestive of a master plan intertwining all three. And, again, it takes those threads and curves it back to Star Wars sentimentality in a way that, in the outline, appears pretty convincing. I mean, mm -hmm. they, have, they have this big final battle on Coruscant. Yeah. I can't say Coruscant either. I want to say Crescent Wrench. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a, a legacy Star Wars planet where the final battle might might as well be. Right. And Instead of some made-up bullshit called Exegol, yeah. <laughs> which no one's ever heard of. Right. Makes no sense as a concept, but whatever. <laughs> which, you, which you access by quick cut tunnel from nowhere <laughs> to nowhere god i still can't the hardest the hardest place to get to in the galaxy yet lando is able to navigate like a billion ships there in no time yeah that could have been better <laughs> but yeah and again uh lando was in that outline that trevor mm -hmm. outline it just uh seems to make a little more sense how they got there i i, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. again it's again there's big difference from page to stage but sure, um, sure. conceptually it's, it's had a lot of good things going on but i think that's the thing right like it, it it definitely feels like you know what i enjoyed about the last Jedi, just kind of taking star wars in a direction that's like at least you know forward progress do you know what i'm saying like you're moving down the field rather than like backtracking going backwards certainly and like i think the point that you just made is is really important and, and i think what really rubbed me the wrong way with rise of skywalker was that it did feel reactive yeah you know in in all of the backlash whoever was disagreeing with the direction of ryan johnson took last jedi you know a, a confident filmmaker will will not just give people like that's the problem with fan service i feel like sometimes right sure. like just trace amounts of fan service is is good to kind of just like you know reward people's attention but when when your entire raison d'etre is to just give the fans everything like let essentially reddit dictate what your movie is you know it, it just doesn't feel fulfilling i actually don't want to be serviced sometimes like you know what i'm saying i don't know and and it's funny that i'm saying this you know five minutes before we start like talking about crisis on infinite earth which was like <laughs> an ultimate fan servicey exercise right exactly but you know i don't know maybe maybe i'm i'm a little too harsh on, on rise of skywalker but after reading what episode nine could have been, it just makes me, I'm not angry. I'm just sad. I'm just disappointed that, you know, Lucasfilm acquiesced to, and essentially like the bad faith argument. Yeah, no, it did. It seemed like a lot of scenes were just cleaning up something that happened on Twitter 
um, that mm-hmm. might not have been heard of. And yeah, and and absolutely, it's it's not an either or. There's there's a happy medium if you're an artist with <laughs> convictions and <laughs> and and style to integrate these things. But, I mean, uh, we talked about yeah. like how the Mandalorian. You know, last time we where we were talking about Rise of Skywalker, we talked about how specifically the Mandalorian gave you fan service without retreading completely sure fans like nostalgia you know sure but the mandalorian has the advantage of operating in a sort of a corner an offshoot where there's more room to build i mean we understand right 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 there was a difficult problem in leading us back to the final confrontation that is just like return of the jedi and yet somehow had to be nothing like return of the jedi as demanded by you know the <laughs> Uh, a fan base of varying ages and generations. We get that that was hard. But uh, again, the remarkable thing about this uh, Trevor outline was it was basically a Star Wars movie. It didn't do anything really weird. It right, just, right, right. It just integrated all the elements in a way that sort of uh, that made sense to us as longtime fans and probably wouldn't put out, you know, the newer fans either. True. Right. I think that's right. The black girls have the box. Love Doctor Who? Have thoughts about the newest episodes? Check out Who Watch, Time and Relative Blackness in Space, a Doctor Who after show on the Hard Knock Media Podcast Network. Find out our thoughts on the latest Whovian updates, back episodes of the show, and our initial reactions about the new seasons. You can find us at hardknockmedia.com, blackgirlscreate.org, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the podcasting app of your choice. Hope you join us on our Tarbis. So that's it. Let's put a button on Star Wars. We are never, ever, ever talking about Star Wars. Never hit that button. On this podcast. Unless you right, want to eject the cockpit. Star Wars does not exist anymore. Uh, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about DC. Yeah. I think this is the first time in a long while that DC as an entertainment entity has captured the imagination of like the majority of fans. Yeah. And that's because they concluded their five episode crossover on the CW crisis on infinite earths. And, you know, they, they started in December and took like a three week break, which is different for the crossovers generally, uh, but came back for a two hour finale on Tuesday. I believe it was Tuesday, the 14th, and then blew everyone's minds because there were some cameos that we'll get to that I think were completely unexpected, but I want to talk about the, the five episodes in general, because I don't think we really got a chance to talk about it. Uh, I know we talked about like the anticipation for Crisis, and you talked about your love of the original comics. Sure, but um, first of all, you're not a you're not a big follower of the CW shows in the first place. Yeah, I'm just medium. I mean, I watch Arrow for a bit. I watch a fair amount of Flash, and I watch some Supergirl. And I th- I I like Arrow quite a lot for a while. I I guess Flash seemed to me a bit too. I uh, know it had a certain cheesy vibe. Some would say fun. Some would say happy and more power to you. And I think I, I tuned out a little bit sort of for the reason that would necessitate a crisis on infinite earths, you know, in the comics as well as TV, which said it started, I mean, at some point it just seemed like Arrow was just going to be a stem cell for more characters and more costumes to be introduced. And it seemed to be like blossoming rather quickly with all, all the characters created the canaries and the death strokes and the captain colds. Right. And it became a little unwieldy in my head. And I say this just to say that's part of the reason you do a 
hard universe reboot because when yeah. i did come back to watch the tv shows this when i watched the crisis series this week it was nice it was that feeling of when you're a comic book reader and have been following something for a while maybe when you were a kid and let it go for a while and then you come back and it's like oh all the same characters are basically there with a few more that i recognize and you know it was it was a sort of a homecoming thing which is nice yeah having walked away from some of the shows and coming back and you, you didn't ever feel like who are these people right like you th- that's the thing about like these kinds of characters being so instantly iconic like even if you don't know the intricacies of what's happening this season on supergirl you're able to recognize the bald guy is lex Luthor, and you know what i mean and like oh, he's yeah, out to kill superman and that's his whole reason for being you know yeah so did you watch all five in like one go or did you kind of watch them in real time um, I watched that first one a while ago and then the holidays happened and then I realized I had to catch up now that the New Year's was over and I, uh, watched them all five just, oh, wow, cool. cause I did want to know what happened. We have to contextualize <laughs> for a second, by the way, what, what Crisis on Infinite Earths is. Go for it. Briefly, Crisis on Infinite Earths was a DC comic series from the mid eighties, 12 issues. And, uh, the basic premise was it collided all the, um, various alternate universes in which there's, you know, a. Superman from Earth 1, Superman Earth 2, blah, 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 and brought them together to face a gigantic anti-matter threat called the Anti-Monitor. I mean, two things it did as far as history, as far as it sort of set the template for the major um, timeline converging crossovers along with Marvel Secret Wars at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a direct line from that period in mid-80s to Infinity War today. And it also provided the model for the hard universe reboot. Sometimes, anyway, the universe reboot, Harder Soft, yeah. that they do every, you know, five or ten years or every other year <laughs> in the comics when the continuity gets too freaking confusing and they're like, oh, wait, no, now there's something's going to explode all the universes again and there's just going to be one Earth. And it's a total fake out because within a year there's going to be seven Earths again to accommodate <laughs> all the arts of the universes. And then there'll be another major explosion which converges it back to one Earth. It's It's a funny cyclical device that they keep doing. Was that a sufficient recap? That's an excellent recap of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the comic. And, you know, and I think we've talked about this in the past, too, that, like, at least for me, someone who's, who's, like, main comic book consumption was late 80s, early 90s. There's definitely, like, and, you know, you don't hear this as much anymore, but, like, when talking about comics when I was coming up reading comics, there was pre-crisis comics and post-crisis comics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like nowadays, it's that doesn't really make a lot of sense because, as you said, they've reset and rebooted the universe like six or seven times since yeah. Crisis on Infinite Earth. So there isn't really like a definitive post-crisis. Like now there's like pre-rebirth and post-rebirth, right. you know, New 52 and all these kinds of, yeah. you know. But to be fair, universes. they also always called back to Crisis for a while when they called all those events some kind of crisis, you know, there was right, Final right, right, Crisis. Right. Infinite Crisis, you know, they have the, identity crisis the is, brand is got a little confusing because they both own the word infinite now. It used to be Marvel was secrets and DC was crisis, right. but then Marvel <laughs> grabbed onto infinity too. So, <laughs> but you're right. Like, I think the Marvel catchphrase is secret. Like all of their events have secret somewhere in, yeah, the, in the title. Or now, I guess now they use war, right? It's like secret wars and civil wars and infinity yeah, wars. Yeah, they just love having <laughs> war in there. I mean, yeah, and Marvel publishes Star Wars, so there, you know, there is that. That was a dumb joke. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> Deduct sixty comedy points from Keith. You still have a high number. <laughs> For DC, it was always crisis. There was always a final crisis or identity crisis or infinite crisis. Yes, and and crisis is a word that is very much aligned with DC comics. 
And similar to like we talked about Watchmen being the unfilmable DC comic story for a long time. I think Christ on Infinite Earths was never was always thought of as something that you could never do in live action. Mm -hmm. As you said, it's too unwieldy. Like the whole point of the comics is that at that point, 50 years of comics continuities, various comics continuities having to come together to make one timeline. And the only way you would do that in live action is if you were to merge all the movie and TV franchises. And I don't think anyone ever thought that would happen because as someone who was a, like a Smallville fan many years ago, the, there was a huge wall between movies and TV. Right. Yes. You know, Smallville wanted to have Batman on the show. The features division was like, hell no. Yeah. And, and it was always like that. Even though Warner Brothers owned everything under the sun that's DC Comics, they put these artificial walls between the movie side and the TV side. And, and for a long time, it wasn't like there was multiple DC Comics TV shows. Right. For a long time, it was like one per decade. Sure. You had Superman in the 50s. Batman in the 60s, Wonder Woman in the 70s. Was there anything in the 80s? I guess like the Superboy show in the 80s. I, I, I'm trying to think if there is a definitive one. I, I feel like there uh, Adventures of Lois and Clark. I don't know. That's 90s. So it Lois was, and Clark yeah. was 90s. Yeah. And then, you know, Smallville, the, the early 2000s. So like, it's it, not like today where there's like 20,000 superhero shows on TV. Sure. And DC yeah. alone having like six different DC shows on its own network, not counting the ones on DC Universe and on HBO and everything, right? So, like, there is a plethora of superhero shows today that you can kind of, you know, we are in the same position where the comics were in the 80s, where, like, you have all these different alternate realities. Even in the CW shows, they exist on, quote-unquote, different universes, right? Supergirl is her own parallel Earth. The Arrow, Flash, Legends are their own Earth. Black Lightning has his own Earth. The DC Universe shows their own Earth. So this is an opportunity, which they did ultimately, uh, and also spoilers if you haven't watched Christ on Infinite Earths. I guess it's too late for the spoiler warning, like 30 minutes into the episode, so apology. <laughs> but the universe freaking ended. We've restarted. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the multiverse. There, yeah, the multiverse. The big thing that came out of the finale of Crisis is that now all of those heroes exist on one Earth, which is kind of which is what it should have been to begin with. But I'm glad they finally settled that, like Black Lightning, Flash, Arrow, Superman, Supergirl. Yeah all live on one earth. Well, I mean, you bring up an interesting thing as far as when, you know, when Smallville was the main thing in town, it at least got to be its own pocket universe. And that, I mean, if there was a Supergirl show running concurrently in some other network, it would automatically beg the question, why don't they run into each other? Right, this right, makes, right. just makes it more confusing. Since we evolved to this point of multiple shows on different platforms, different mm -hmm. networks, they're kind of screaming out to have some connection to each other at some point. Yeah. Also, the way they hearken back to the mega crossover cameo from everybody in the multiverse kind of way was awfully clever in which they managed to grab all these people from various TV shows and movies throughout mm -hmm. the years. That's the best part. Yeah, totally the best part. My fantasy was always that the DC, you know, what is the biggest difference between DC and Marvel in the movies, right? Like Marvel figured out in 2008 how to basically seed an entire cinematic universe. And for the last 10 years, that has been the only game in town, right? All of the movies feed into each other, cameos from different heroes. And then that was how every other movie studio decided we want to make our franchises. And none of them work other than Marvel. We've talked about that. Around the same time, exactly the same year Iron Man came out, DC was in the middle of its own Dark Knight trilogy, mm -hmm. which is separate from 
the Burton Batmans, the Schumacher Batmans, the eventual Snyder Batman. Like it was Christopher Nolan's trilogy. And that's how DC always approached their movies. It was like, we're not going to connect them to each other. You know, Richard Donner is going to do his Superman. Tim Burton's going to do his Batman and they're not going to exist in the same universe. Like that yeah. wasn't even a thought. How, John how do we feeling that Batman is the one, <laughs> right? <laughs> the one type of that thing that's happening in this world. Exactly. No one famously said that Superman can't exist in his universe. So even though he produced and had a story credit on man of steel, Christopher Nolan made, made a point to say this man of steel movie that comes out a year after the dark Knight rises is not yeah. connected to the dark Knight at all. Yeah. Which I always thought was silly because the whole point of Man of Steel was that, like, how would Superman exist in the real world? Yeah. <laughs> like, and Nolan's whole thing is like, well, my world's a real world and Superman couldn't exist in it. But, like, that's the whole point of Man of Steel. Anyway, I digress. And it felt like after the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of became became the norm, essentially, DC and Warner Brothers kind of tried to backfill and say, oh, yeah, we're, we're connecting a universe, too. And then the DCEU formed kind of... In response, as what we were saying earlier about Star Wars, kind of in a reaction to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It didn't feel organic like the Marvel Cinematic Universe did. Certainly. And even though DCEU has its fans, it's safe to say the DCEU as a idea, as a concept, as a franchise, is not quite what the MCU is. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's not as well organized. <laughs> so I always argued that instead of trying to go for a cinematic universe... Warner Brothers should have been in the game of creating a cinematic multiverse and finding a way to connect all of these, saying essentially what they did in the TV show. The Burton universe exists as an alternate universe. The Nolan universe exists as an alternate universe. The Donner movies exist as an alternate universe. And there's going to be some catalyzing event that mashes all of them together. And then you can tie in the CW shows and tie in all of the classic Every, all the way back from the 60s and the 70s and everything into this one massive event. And that was like, it was a pipe dream. It was like, this is never going to happen. The the budget alone would be like a billion dollars, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to get all the rights, all the likeness rights and everything. And lo and behold, somehow on a dinky little network called the CW, they figured out a way to kind of actualize what I had always envisioned as a fantasy. How do we say that all of these various properties across the decades kind of exist in the same multiverse? And I knew they were bringing in Brandon Routh Superman. I knew they were bringing in Burt Ward from the 60s Batman show. Of course, I knew Tom Welling and Erica Durant were going to be there from Smallville. But that did not preclude some of like the holy shit moments throughout this crossover where they connect not only the things that they announced that they were connecting, but connected even the Batman from Tim Burton and, and even <laughs> the current DCEU Justice League. Like that fucking blew my mind. I didn't think that would ever happen. And they were able to kind of like say all of these places exist in the same ultimate. It was crazy. I, I commend all the folks at the CW for somehow figuring that out. Yeah, it was very clever. And it, it offsets the lesser big production value battle scenes with its these own kind of exciting. Every, every cameo appearance was an exciting thing. And it also served, you know, just fans of film and television over the years as opposed to just <laughs> hardcore comics fans you know a lot of people are just like oh that batman tv show with the 60s i know that even though i'm not a huge batman nerd and right. you know just to call it like is is it not like a classic robin who gets like antimatter aced yeah, in the first that's episode? actually so that's that's a nice holy red skies moment. of death batman yeah, so it's, <laughs> yeah it's amazing yeah and he's and he's walking a german shepherd which i guess is supposed to be ace the bat hound yeah but it like <laughs> but my first holy shit moment sure. was in that first episode with robert wool yeah. from from the tim burton movie like 
clearly yeah. stating that this is the Tim Burton universe. It was crazy. Good old Robert. Well, yeah. What, what other uh, what other appearances did did you enjoy? Oh wow! Should, should uh, we make note of? Yeah, let's let's. What are some of your favorite cameos? Well, let's talk about. I, I'll I'll talk about the Ezra Miller one because that one, that one I think was the most amazing one because it didn't get leaked. No sure. one knew about that until the episode aired, and especially in like nerd pop circles, that never happens. Yeah. No one is ever surprised by anything in the age of the internet and fandoms anymore. And the collective like gasp around the world <laughs> when Ezra Miller showed up on the flash, I think it was, was genuine because nobody knew about that. I don't, I still don't not quite sure how they pulled that off because that's, that's some feat of movie making in and of itself to get Ezra Miller onto the set of the flash in Vancouver with nary a paparazzi noticing. I mean, I suspect it had something to do with Ezra Miller's own enthusiasm for being flash and trying and, you know, trying to keep the flash relevant, relevant. On, on people's minds. Yeah. Cause yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever back backstory on that, you know, the flash movie keeps is in development hell in some form. And they're just trying to find a way to keep it buzzy, but on a purely story level, it worked perfectly because that's exactly a flash thing that would happen. <laughs> you know, the flash is always the key to any time. sort of, yeah. but did you think here's what I want to posit when I was watching that scene with the two flashes, TV flash and movie flash, I think it was implied that, Justice League movie universe is still another <laughs> another out of bounds universe. You know what I mean? Like a prime universe that it wasn't even swept up in this whole anti monitor problem, right? Did you guys feel like it, it was still it was still standing apart in in some ways? It, it, oh sure, I seriously doubt that in the next you know official DCEU canon movie they're going to reference the fact that he met Grant Gustin. Like I don't think that'll happen. Although I did find it fun that. You know, they acknowledge the fact that Barry Allen is never actually called the Flash in any of his movie appearances. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> and that when Grant Gustin Flash calls him the Flash, he's like, oh, I like that name, basically, you know? Yeah. So if he that is indeed good. called the Flash the next time he's on, on screen, which I do think this appearance on the CW has upped the probability that they'll make a Flash movie even higher. Yeah. Because I think you're right that part of the idea was like, let's... Let's get some buzz behind Ezra Miller as the Flash again. And I think, as I said earlier, to kick this off, this is the most positive buzz I think DC has gotten in a, quite a long time, especially for like something like its current movie property, that I think that the buzz generated just from his appearance on The Flash alone will will probably breathe new life into his movie franchise, which I'm happy for because I, I, you know, I never disliked Ezra Miller as The Flash. I think he's got potential to be a really good movie Flash. It just... Like the best parts of the Justice League, which was mostly a terrible movie, all belong to his Flash. I think. Sure, they had, they had some life. There were there were sparks there. Yeah, I I also like how they you know he he mentioned that the Flash's TV costume looks a lot more comfortable than the movie style <laughs> costumes, which is always something we've been wondering about on a stylistic aspect. Like, are they really wearing these suits of armor with all the like clinky little, you know, <laughs> You know, plates moving around. I mean, and and, and relatively, the, the TV costumes look a little bit more old school campy, but they do look comfortable. I mean, right. is, the, is Flash's costume made of velour now? Or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But do you want to talk about the Batman-Superman thing that happened around in the third part of Crisis? Because that made me do some interior library checking. Of the- you mean the Kevin Conroy appearance? Yeah. The fact that he murdered his universe as Superman? Yeah, and he was more or less the Batman versus Superman Superman. 
I mean, Batman. Kind of. Yeah. I don't think he's actually Ben Affleck's Batman, but he's definitely the I hate the world and I'm going to murder everybody Batman. (laughs) Yeah. Which was, that was cool for those of us who read this shit. And and my gosh, they really love that passage from Dark Dark, Dark Knight Returns, that bit about, you know, you know, my parents taught me a different lesson. It was interesting to make Kevin Conroy be that version of a Batman because for, I think, a lot of people, Kevin Conroy is the definitive Batman. Certainly. You know, I think, at least for me, the definitive Batman is not a Batman who would go and murder everybody. <laughs> yeah, he had the meanest break of all the alternate Batmans. <laughs> Arguably, he had the most interesting character arc of the alternate Batmans. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, but I think it was definitely a, a bold choice to make the Kevin Conroy Batman be so... 180 degrees different from what everyone associates with his version of Batman, you know, Hmm. because the thing about the animated Batman is that he's not. I think the reason he's the definitive Batman for so many people is that he's not extreme one way or the other. Right. He's not goofy, happy go lucky Batman from the 60s, but he's also not quite Frank Miller. Like he's not the goddamn psycho Batman. Yeah, I'm not the goddamn Batman. Right. Like he's the happy medium between both extremes. And that's why. For all intents and purposes, he's the best Batman. Yeah, that's why people adore that series. Right. And so this is say, like, we're going to put Kevin Conroy in his first live action take on Bruce Wayne and make him, like, this disgruntled, you know, all hope is lost Batman. I thought that was that was bold. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that necessarily, but... But was it brave? Well, I think that's the whole point. He's not brave. He is, he is not the paragon of courage. And that's what Kate Kane found out, so... Yeah, because it can go wrong. What did you think of Brandon Routh's return as Superman? <laughs> and I say return, no pun intended. Right. Superman returns, mm-hmm. returns. Anyway. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how he looks exactly like the Atom and they just let that play. That was kind of fun, <laughs> which I think is fine because of all the cast members in the whole CW verse. I think Brandon Routh is like most in tune with the vibe that they're going for. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Think- and Legends of Tomorrow is the best at that. I know that you're not caught up on Legends, but... Legends, after its dour first season, decided we're just going to be a goofy romp in a, okay. in superheroes. And he definitely embodies that for sure. Yeah, yeah. And he can do that thing. I mean, it's the best one. And, you know, it's worth, it's worth mentioning that, like, like yeah, all, all these shows, all the CW-verse, I find a little campy, if that's the right word. But it can be yeah. campy in a sort of, um, I want to say, like, Buffy sort of way. And I think he's the one who's, who's angling towards that. But anyway, uh, yeah, so... And okay, so then, so he's Adam, and then he's Superman Returns, Returns. And, but he's also supposed to be from Kingdom Come. And then when I say supposed to be, I mean, they're, they kind of merge those two Superman storylines together, right? Together and referencing Kingdom Come, which is this other important comic series, which we don't need to totally summarize, but it's the one where sure. he hits the black and red uh, chess logo. And, and Lois dies and he becomes depressed and everything. Yeah. Yes. I think what they're trying to imply is that. He is the Superman Returns Superman, which by dint of being a quasi-sequel to the Richard Donner Superman, he's actually also the Christopher Reeve Superman. Right. <laughs> he makes a reference to Superman 3, actually, when he when he fights Tyler Hecklin. And he's like, oh, I, I remember fighting a bad version of myself or something like he? that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That- which is, a, which is a, a callback to Superman 3. Sure. I think what they're saying is that some point after Superman Returns happens, the movie... The Joker attacks the Daily Planet and murders everybody he loves. So that's how right. they kind of combine Kingdom Come and, and uh, Superman Returns. But he definitely is playing the Superman Returns, Brandon Routh Superman, which is not a Superman I have much affection for, honestly, even though I love Brandon Routh as a person. He's a great guy. And his take on Superman in this crossover was great. 
I have no love for the Brian Singer movie. Oh, yeah. So it was good that they redeemed kind of they redeemed that because it gave Brandon Routh one more chance to play a Superman, which was more supermanly than the Superman he ultimately played in the movie. Right. Man, just said Superman a whole bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> Superman, Superman, Superman. <laughs> Mitzel Blake, Mitzel Blake. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, the, those were just two really significant appearances as far as yet i love tyler hecklin i think he's great on the show on supergirl and he's a he's a great superman but did you feel like seeing him next to first tom welling and then brandon ralph it was just like wow (laughs) the dude (laughs) well yeah somewhat (laughs) but i think that speaks to the interesting thing that as far as the supergirl tv show goes uh superman is conceived as a side character right a, a very important side character but it is supergirl's show and you know I'm, i have mixed feelings about supergirl but i think she carries the show i mean she plays as supergirl she, she uh, yeah she makes sense no benoist is great she's yeah. great as supergirl i i agree like there's some things on the show that are less great uh that don't quite live up to the the strength of her of its lead uh yeah. I, I think martian manhunter is great i wish martian manhunter would have more to do yeah. Oh, and he got a lot more Martian Manhunter in Crisis too. He gets yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We finally got the costume and starts using his wacky powers and. <laughs> but yeah, for that for that reason, it's sort of it it jibes in my head canon that the Superman of Supergirl, <laughs> Supergirl TV show Earth, is it's just seems a little less alpha. He seems more like a yeah, buddy. Yeah. He seems like a he seems like a super friend. <laughs> so, and again, this is all just visual presentation. I'm not speaking on everyone, anyone's actual personality. It's just it, sure, it's how right. it presents. And then that's kind of what I was saying that, yeah. like, you know, th- this was a completely superficial argument, but like Tyler Hecklin is probably like 6'1, which is not short, but like having him next to Tom Welling, who's 6'4, and Brandon Routh, who's like 6'3, and those are big, burly guys next to him. It was just like, it just, it was a visually like, wow, Tyler Hecklin is. Yeah. He doesn't quite look, yeah. he looks like a guy dressed up as Superman. Well, Tom Welling seemed especially time. burly in his cameo, too. And I mean that in a good way. He looked exactly <laughs> like that cameo of the old retired farming Superman slash Clark Kent that I think from Kingdom about. Come. Yeah. That was, that yeah, was yeah. a good bit. I, I, I remember yeah. being a little concerned about how the Tom Welling thing would play out, but I, I thought that was a fun scene. You know, ultimately, I, I think I, w- I was at peace with it, too, because, you know, my thing was now that we have a world where. Everyone under the sun is wearing a fucking costume right. that could it be possible? I know that the catchphrase for Smallville was no flights, no tights, but like, could we see Tom Welling in the Superman costume? And then like reality said it. I was like, the reason Tom Welling never wore a Superman costume was because Tom Welling doesn't want to wear a Superman costume. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> I hate to tell all the Smallville fans. It was never like, you know, the studio won't let it happen or anything. Tom Welling does not want to put on tights. Like, I think that's pretty clear now especially when you when you go back and watch the finale of smallville and you realize it like they cgi'd <laughs> tom <laughs> like they never show tom like full body shot when he's wearing the costume in the finale it's only just a right, headshot right. and then and then it pans back and it's clearly a cgi so i never thought we'd get tom in the suit and you know originally i was a little disappointed that we wouldn't see it but then just seeing him and erica on the show being clark and lois on the farm that's when you think of Smallville, that's what you think of. You think yeah. of Clark on the farm, and it makes sense that that's how his appearance would be. Uh, so I'm just glad that we got yeah. to see that. Because again, that was never, I never thought we would see those characters on Smallville again. So yeah. the fact that we did was was pretty cool. And frankly, it's more effective, I think, because the farm is the yin yang side of that iconography that makes it work. And we've got too many people flying around in Superman suits already. It wouldn't have had that much of an impact right. if we'd added a third one, right? Uh, but it does have an impact to recall that side that is 
Clark on the farm and right. whether or not he has a life with Lois and that kind of, you know, pastoral, you know, idyllic vision of America that Smallville represents. I don't know. That was, that was, it worked. That was, that yeah, was lovely. It totally worked. It, it was, it was a good callback to, to the show. One more, I think really awesome callback in the, in the first half of the crisis was, 90s flash did you ever watch the john wesley ship flash show uh no i mean i've seen bits of it i mean i wasn't a huge fan either like i probably caught like three or four episodes but i knew enough to recognize tina mcgee who who was his love interest on the show who actually was uh oh is that um, amanda what's her face was also on yeah 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 yeah, yeah. sorry i can't remember your last name amanda what's your face but that's the cool thing about the flash on the CW is that they've been kind of casting legacy characters like that yeah, and having yeah. them play the same character, right? Like, yeah. so Amanda, what's her name <laughs> plays Tina McGee on the CW flash, just an older version. Mark Hamill has come back and played the trickster on the CW flash mm-hmm. and where they use footage from the nineties show as like, this is what the trickster looked like 20 years ago, mm. which is kind of neat that they always acknowledged it. And of course, uh, John Wesley ship was playing, Barry's father on the show and then has played multiple versions of flash, whether it's the Jake Eric flash or the nineties flash that he originated on TV 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Now, Jesus Christ, as Elizabeth Warren reminded us, 1990 was 30 years ago. <laughs> Damn it. And her, her and her math. <laughs> now, does Andrew Yang know that uh, Elizabeth Warren is doing math on the debate stage? So uh, I can't co-sign to this Andrew Yang and math meme that's going to keep <laughs> popping up. As we, I, I think that leads to a regressive place myself. But, well, but whose I, fault is that? It's uh, not mine. It, it, it's certainly not your fault. <laughs> so anyway, I know enough about The Flash from the 90s. So that it, to me, it was really moving that they gave John Wilson Ship's Barry Allen Flash, you know, because The Flash has to die in a crisis. That's I think that's just yeah. that's written in the stars that has to happen and that they gave him a, a, a you know it was a nice homage to to his character and actually using that extended clip from the 90s flash at the end was really cool too yeah it, it made up for the fact that that cosmic treadmill looks really just like a treadmill when you actually build it <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know if that thing has appeared in the flash before but that was one of those things was like yeah that's kind of a neat concept in the comic books and george Perez draws it nicely but it's like nah, that just looks like a treadmill <laughs> <laughs> that's what's so nice about i think the cw shows that it's it is goofy like you said it is kind of campy in a way but it's campy and goofy in a in a way that still has verisimilitude it's very reminiscent of the donner superman Right. Like that. Hmm? It's not campy like the 60s Batman where it's just ridiculous and over the top and they play it as such or like the Schumacher movies. Yeah. There's enough camp, but the characters in universe treat it as if it's real. Do you know what I mean? Like there's this fine balance between like over the top camp and kind of winking at the audience and like like even like Deadpool is like that. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily appreciate. Right. But where you embrace the goofy aspects of like comic book storytelling I think this is where some of the best Marvel stuff lives, you know, like they accept that some of the shit is wacky, but they don't treat it as if like, I can't believe this is happening. You know what I yeah. mean? The CW DC shows have a lot more in common with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think a lot of people give it credit for. I, I, I get that idea. I, I yeah, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I have to binge a lot more to get an informed opinion about that one. <laughs> I felt an arrow. I'll say that. Like I felt arrow had some down and dirty moments, which I really appreciated. And maybe, maybe, maybe they still do. Like you said, like you said, I haven't watched the 
all of Legends. Yeah. Well, but let me let me rephrase that though. I think wh- where I was going with that comparison with the MCU is that I think the DC CW universe is similar to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in in that way, where like I said, where they kind of embrace the over the topness of their like world. Mm-hmm. You know, like they don't deny that it's happening, <laughs> and and they don't also treat it with like the somberness that like the DC movies do. You know what I mean? Like it's still fun. Sure. The spectacle is still real. And I think the other similarity to the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that because these actors have played these characters for so many years, fans have a natural affinity for them, right? Like I've said for a long time, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man is why we love Iron Man. If they swapped Robert Downey Jr. for somebody else, he wouldn't get that instant amount of affection. Yeah. And I think that's true for the CW guys. Like people love Grant Gustin as The Flash and... Stephen Amell as Green Arrow, Melissa Benoist as Superman. Yeah. Like their version of these characters is what we cling to. And we've been with them for like five, six, seven, eight years now. I think there's there's something that you can't replace with that kind of like that familiarity with these particular versions of these characters. And I'm not saying that like, you know, I think the problem with the DCEU wasn't that, you know, not just the somberness of like they just didn't give people enough time to get to know those versions of those characters sure. before they mesh them together. Yeah. That's the the difference that the CW versions of these characters have over the movie ones. It's just that we just spent more time with them. Yeah, we definitely spent more time with them at this point. And they earned yeah, and they earned that cred. They're they those faces are wearing those characters pretty much right now. And yeah. Fortunately they haven't recast them, you know, six times. And right. yeah, I guess that is where it's coming from. That's a that's a good point. Yeah, but clearly like they lack the budget of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Certainly. some of those end battles in the crisis <laughs> were kind of wacky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's where that's where some of that like campiness shines through because like you can see how earnest the actors are when they're throwing punches against CGI monsters. Right. And it just doesn't land as well as like when they do it in, you know, Infinity War, because just the budget of, you know, Infinity War, it looks like they're, you know, on the plains of Wakanda or the ruins of the Avengers compound. Whereas on Crisis, it looks like they're in a parking lot in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The shadow demons were a little less well defined, <laughs> but the concept was good. I, <laughs> can I just add on another fun thing about Crisis was whether by design or by accident, it was kind of a nice recap of basically every big genre pop cultural science fiction superhero thing that happened last year. <laughs> in in the sense that it called out to Endgame and Star Wars. And basically everything, like, it had its Jedi moment, it has the, Mm -hmm. like, everyone died and we have to bring them back thing. Not that these Mm -hmm. are new inventions of tropes, but it was sort of like the, I don't know, I just say it was like the fan film recap of all those big moments. For example, (laughs) even, like, Ryan Choi, uh, the presumptive new Adam, you know, alone. Shout out to Osric Chow. Yeah. Yeah. Great to meet you. Osric Chow, great to meet you, new Adam. I am dissembling. The point is, it has that guy, Roy Choi, as the scientist on a ship adrift in space, having his sort of soliloquy to his family. It was sort of a lovely moment. And it's basically exactly the same scene as the one that happens at the beginning of Endgame with Tony Stark. Oh. But, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's okay. okay. But I mean, because that's a good scene. And it, 
it uh you know pulls us into the humanity of the whole thing or maybe i'm always exaggerating it because those end of the world tropes are the same in all movies i don't know maybe i'm overstating that no but, but there's definitely like there's definitely a sense at the end of the uh cliffhanger in december when the antimatter wave was killing everybody it was very much the thanos snap for sure yeah where like you know you see iris and everyone turned to dust essentially and of course the end battle of of crisis is you know the heroes charging <laughs> these cgi monsters until their version of tony stark in this case green arrow as the specter which was cool because the specter fighting the anti-monitor is <laughs> such a uh uh crisis on infinite earths you know yeah that's an iconic image like uh, one of the covers one of the great covers yeah exactly and I, I i just wish that like Stephen amell didn't die in the penultimate episode that he died in the last episode because that's when we yeah. saw the giant anti-monitor and you wanted the giant anti-monitor to fight the giant specter. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what I wanted to see. That was my, probably my favorite fan service reference of the whole thing was the green arrow into specter thing. But we can get to yeah. that in a minute. <laughs> no, that was great. And then, and then of course, Stephen Amell dying the way Tony Stark dies. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely parallels, like on a, on a much lower budget, <laughs> which is what probably gives it its fan film feeling. Because like I said, you can tell they're just filming on a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it was it was endearing somehow. And it, it's funny because like just moment to appreciate the original Crisis comic book. Part of what made it great was the art of George Perez, who's, you know, well known among, about, among comics fans. I'm very fond of him. Mm-hmm. He was the one who could draw these huge splash pages with like 80 different costumes in them right. and somehow get them all arranged in the page. So you like you saw all of them. It had a, it had a very special like you know, split focus, but like everyone's vivid quality. It's really, really weird. It's like looking at 80 people at once and they're all bursting out. Like of nobody's sh- out of focus. Yeah, nobody's right, out right. of focus and they've all got an excellent costume on. He's <laughs> one of the only comic books artists who can do this in the, in the, you know, in the old school way. Sure. So that was, you know, the kind of visual aspiration that we had in Crisis, which he didn't necessarily get because of technical impracticalities of doing that kind of thing. But, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was going for it at certain points. <laughs> you know, they always, they, they try to have that splash page shot in at least in the, each of the Avengers movies at least once. And they get pretty close to it. I mean, probably they get closest to it in, in the last part of the, Endgame, but it's still hard just technically to get everyone's full body into a frame where they're all <laughs> right. Where, where they're present. This is where the budget comes in yeah. because the Avengers Endgame movie was able to like you know spend money to have literally every actor who's ever appeared in in any of those movies in the last ten years to show up, whether at the final battle or at the funeral. Right, like sure. either because the funeral was similar in the scope of its. Uh, I actually found the funeral scene in Endgame more impressive in terms of like the scope of just how many people were sharing a, yeah. a scene together. Yeah, that is a great shot. <laughs> but in the TV show, like there were definitely actors that they didn't bring back for the last two episodes just because, you know, I think the the rules and the, and the pay scales of like, we can't bring Candace Patton in for just one scene. So mm-hmm. Iris is just not going to be around for some reason. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Let's wind down our discussion on crisis with a, one last thing. What's one moment that we haven't discussed already that stood out for you in Crisis? I have two. One of them might overlap with yours. But what is there one moment that we haven't discussed yet that stood out to you from the Crisis crossover? Well, I mentioned it briefly before, but I like the part where Green Arrow encounters the Spectre and becomes the Spectre. Because mm-hmm. for me, that was maybe I like this in a purely referential way. I don't know. But for one thing, it calls out to that storyline in 
Green Lantern, Green Arrow's sometimes partner. Right. You know, when during the death, death of Superman, Green Lantern's city gets destroyed. He's overcome with grief at having failed to stop this cataclysm and he encounters the Spectre. And the Spectre is this kind of, you know, one cool thing, but he's, he's an overwhelmingly powerful mystical force in DC and he's also just associated with vengeance and murder and you know the just the the things that ripple out from taking human life he's it's a dark ghostly character Mm -hmm. and green lantern adopts this dark spirit for a a while anyway so they don't have green lantern in cdw quite except for a cameo at the end but um (laughs) I, i like that oliver queen who is probably the darkest most brutal character as far as the cw universe goes Right. Um, had to engage this uh, the spirit of death. And that just aligns things in a cool way for me. I agree. And it made a lot of sense that he would take on the Spectre persona. One, because it was ridiculous that Stephen Amell dies 45 minutes into the crossover. You knew yeah. it was gonna, they were going to bring him back somehow at the end. But also, like because his costume is already a green hood. Yeah. Totally. It wasn't too far of a leap for him to look like the Spectre. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Totally works. And also, it's kind of cool that they went looking for his soul in the Pocket Universe Island, even even though, again, that's that's that also happened in Endgame. But anyway, <laughs> little souls getting uh, thrown into alternate universes. Uh, sorry, Keith. Sure. So I have two. Okay. Uh, one being essentially... They unite the seven in Crisis and not in the Justice League movie <laughs> because they actually form. I don't think they form the Justice League. They form the Super Friends at the end. Oh, yeah. Because I, uh, yeah. The, that Hall of Justice building was from a previous crossover where he says, oh, this is just a Star Labs warehouse. Right. And they cut to the outside and it looks like the Hall of Justice. And so in this one, like he he says, we're going to actually take it over. And he he unveils a table with seven chair, eight chairs, one for Green Arrow, but seven other chairs with everyone's logos on it. And the founding members of the CW version of the Justice League or AKA the Super Friends are mm-hmm. the Flash, Supergirl, Superman, Black Lightning, White Canary, Martian Manhunter and Batwoman. And then they cut to a monkey escaping a cage and the cage is called Gleek. So maybe the Wonder Twins will show up too. That would be awesome. I'm wondering if like they they kind of allude that Superman and Lois have twins. And I'm wondering if the twins are actually the the Wonder Twins. Excellent idea. (laughs) So I love the I love the reference to the Super Friends. I think they even played the Super Friends theme as it I think that was the Super Friends theme. Just right? Like, it was, right? In the shot of the Hall of Justice? I believe it was. Yeah. I watched a fair amount of Super Friends back <laughs> in the day, so, yeah. But my favorite moment in the entire crossover, other than the Smallville one, but we've already discussed that, okay. is uh, when Supergirl and Flash realize that they're on the same Earth in mm. that scene because they've merged together. Some older gentleman walks up to them and, and he wants their autograph, and that older gentleman is named Marv, and he's played by Marv Wolfman, yeah. who wrote... Crisis on Infinite Earths, and he actually wrote, co-wrote one of the episodes in the crossover. Oh, right on. But he's playing himself. It's, it's almost like a Stan Lee cameo yeah. <laughs> where Marv Wolfman is playing Marv Supergirl Flash fanboy. And what's great about Marv Wolfman asking Flash and Supergirl for their autograph is that he famously kills Supergirl and Flash in Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> oh, I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> so, so this is like this is like his. <laughs> you wrote in our deaths, fucker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is kind of like, but this is kind of like a meta take back of that, where Marv loves them so much that yeah. he wants their autograph. So it's, it's, I love that. That was a great nice moment. Reconciliation. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so like just seeing Marv Wolfman and the respect that he gets, you know, that yeah. that you know that the creators of the show were like, let's give Marv a. 
a send off and have him be the guy who's asking for Flash and Supergirl. And then knowing that he killed Flash and Supergirl in the comics was a great, yeah, great meta moment on the on the show. A great meta moment, intertextual, bringing the comic and the show together. Yeah. So yeah, that's our that's our take on Crisis on Infinite Earths. I, I I had so much fun. I still want Warner Brothers to release all five episodes as one cut together three and a half hour movie. Again, to echo, we're just doing all the end game echoes. Turn this into a three and a half hour movie. Put it out on Blu-ray. <laughs> Hashtag release the crisis cut. <laughs> Wasn't the premise of the end game thing was so that could become the biggest box office ever? Would, yeah. Wouldn't Crisis have to have to some uh, a sort of tentpole mark that it was trying to match by being re-released? I don't know. Maybe that's... I don't know. Make it the most. highest selling Blu-ray disc of all time. <laughs> that's a- <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that will be available to you, Keith. I bet, I bet they'll have such a thing. I would, You would think so. I mean, it, it sounds like such a money-making idea. Because like, the only other way to get it is if you buy like all of the separate shows. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to buy like five different box sets just to have the five episodes I want to watch. I guess you could always just buy the individual episodes on iTunes or something. But well, I'm, I'm just being the millennial person right now who is just says, it's just all on the CDW and you just, on, on the, it's on the app. And it'll, yeah, I know. <laughs> but you're saying it'll, that'll disappear in time. That'll be cycled out and you, you want your permanent copy? I want my disc. I'm a physical okay, media okay, guy. I want it. my disc. Got it. And we're all five episodes seamlessly edited together into one viewing experience sure that's what i want <laughs> that would be physically convenient and then you can give me the black lightning episode as a bonus feature because yeah even though it wasn't officially part of the crossover the episode that aired during the crossover was very much a part of the crossover so it kind of explained how black lightning showed up in the crossover so if you didn't watch the black lightning episode it was like where did black lightning come from it actually showed how he how he got there oh so. okay i didn't realize that yeah, yeah, it was like it's like one of those kind of like, you know, in a in a crossover comic crossover, there's always like the one issue that's not technically part of the numbered issues in the crossover, you know? Yeah. Like there's a Crisis on Infinite Earths, but then there's like a random Batman issue that talks about the periphery of the main story. Oh, okay. That's kind of how the Black Lightning episode played out. Oh, okay. I just thought so, he, he did show up kind of conveniently because he was absolutely needed at that moment. <laughs> that too. So perfect. <laughs> Well, this is which is kind of like the monitor was basically a duesis machina in the whole thing is like, I need you at this point here. Yeah. And that character like that can just pull you and put you in the place you need to be. Yep. Anyway, that's our discussion of Crisis on Infinite Earths for this week. Dominic Ma, how can people get in touch with you on the Internet? Oh, I'm Dama, D-O-M-M-A-H on the social medias, Twitter and Instagram. And I also... Right for the Nerds of Color, the website, the blog that we're associated with. You can find me on Twitter at the Real Chow, the underscore real underscore chow, and follow the Nerds of Color at the Nerds of Color. Go to hardknockmedia.com to find this and all the podcasts in the Hard Knock family, including the rebranded Daisy Geek Girls and more. Subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere you get podcasts. Please give us a rating and review if you do. Support us on GoFundMe and Patreon.com slash Nerds of Color. Buy merch at TeePublic. And that's it. Dominic Ma. Keith. You have not failed this multiverse. (laughs) Congratulations. Insert tagline here. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye.